Sounds great. Daniel Norman, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me, Anthony. We're going to be delving a little bit more into the Web3 world. I think our listeners are probably still not super hip to it, but IPFS, I think, is a good bridge technology to get people into Web3 because there's no tokens. There's not as much weird financial shilling that comes along with some of the ecosystem. But we'll get into IPFS in a little bit. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit about yourself, how you got into coding. I think some of our listeners Listeners may recognize you as a former Prisma OG. So we'd love to hear your background and you know how you got to where you are. Yeah, I, I got into programming at quite an early age. I was, I was quite lucky in my primary school. We had this program where they kind of introduced computers back in like the early days of the internet in the 90s. We got to do some web development there. And like it was really, I mean, rudimentary. We were learning like HTML, CSS wasn't really a thing at the time. But I remember, you know, like staying at school kind of like after hours, just because we had a much faster internet connection, instead of being 56 kilobits, it was double that. And so when everyone left, you know, you got the whole bandwidth to yourself. And so that was kind of like my exposure to the internet. I think at the time, the internet was at this publishing revolution, you know, anyone could publish a website. I think it was like GeoCities was one of like the platforms, like imagine that's the Vassell or the Netlify of that period. I remember, you know, I was publishing like this little website and I was really excited about this idea that, you know, it was kind of like a gateway into the broader world. It was like really like going beyond the sort of immediate physical and geographical community that I was tied up in. I was always a nerd and I was always kind of like engaging with these different technologies. I was programming in, in a, you know, visual basic at the time and I was learning a bit of C++ and, you know, I had no clue what was going on. Then later on, um, the LAMP stack was picking up. That was kind of like, again, this exciting set of technologies. You know, Wikipedia is built on the LAMP stack. For those who aren't familiar, LAMP just stands for Linux, Apache, MySQL, and PHP. This was, you know, also the early days of Facebook, the mid-2000s. And this stack was really picking up, spurring this kind of like new wave of innovation, building stuff on top of it. And so I was learning, you know, PHP. At the time, I had done like this little internship at Vodafone in Australia, working on their billing system. And, you know, that's where I kind of learned SQL, basically on their Oracle database. And my parents, you know, they both had like a Vodafone contract. And it was kind of cool because during like this internship that I did, I was able to really like query their billing data and their calls. And, you know, I had this like two week opportunity to learn SQL from, you know, some pretty advanced software engineers. So that was kind of like my foray into SQL and, and relational databases, which seems to come again and again. Interestingly, I, I also recently researched this. I was like looking at things that are timeless in the software world, things that are still sort of true today, especially you know, in the JavaScript world. We just had a chat about this prior to this recording about, you know, how we tend to in the JavaScript world to reinvent things every year and a half, like bundlers, for example. And, you know, I was giving the example of Require.js and Browserify, Webpack, and then, you know, now it's Vit. That's sort of how I learned SQL. I was able to apply that with the PHP and the LAMP stack. And I was building some web apps and I then started working with a friend of mine. He was like an entrepreneur. We were building like online shops and, you know, really doing like these early e-commerce deployments using this LAMP stack. And then I sort of moved on. And at the time, these front end rich apps started becoming very popular. I mean, I think Gmail was one of the first ones that popularized this, this whole Ajax paradigm and like sending asynchronous HTTP requests once the page loads. 
jQuery made it really easy to do these kinds of things. A couple of years later, you had all of these crazy, messy apps that were using jQuery. And then suddenly people were like, oh, we need to think about a way to structure things on the front end. As the logic started getting pushed arguably to the edge, I mean, the ideal edge of the user's browser, you had this wave of reinvention. Backbone came around and Ember. And that's when I sort of went deep into those technologies. And at the time was also studying computer science. So I was doing this for a while and I got really exhausted from doing front ends with Backbone and just there were so many pitfalls that you had to constantly avoid like memory leaks from you know you forgot to unbind from like an event handler that you tied up to an element that isn't even in the DOM anymore so that was really painful and you know there were new abstractions on top of Backbone at the time but things just got really complex and hairy and I was like okay I want to switch to backend development and so I switched into backend development and at the time the shop I was working at was uh, using this programming language called Dlang it was created by like Walter White, I think. No, sorry, I might, I might be confusing that with Walter White from... Um... D, the programming language, like after C, D. Exactly. So D was supposed to be a successor to C and C++. It's still an active language. I mean, it has a small community. It's Walter Bright. Walter Bright, that's the one, yeah. I remember at some point, we were the biggest shop at the time using this programming language. And I remember we even made some of the core contributors to the programming language were working at the company because we were the biggest user of this and we were you know deploying these like really high traffic systems we had this quote in our systems once in a million happens every 3 seconds because we were just handling so many requests and at the time that was considered big scale so that was like my foray into distributed hash tables and and a bit more like lower level programming and that was something you know that my time at uni really pushed me to be more interested in lower level data structures and micro optimizations and a focus on foundations it was quite difficult work at the time but i spent a couple of is doing that. And then I left that. And then at the time, Go started becoming popular. And so I, I learned a bit of Go. And, you know, I went through a bunch of these different kind of like waves in the software world through different industries. You know, one was the ad tech industry and then the financial technology like fintech. And while I was working at fintech, I had gotten exposed to Bitcoin and I became curious in these distributed systems and protocols. So I was working for this fintech company. I had my doubts that were developing from working at this fintech startup where we were doing, you know, microservices with front ends and, you know, REST and, and a bit of GraphQL, I think we were doing at the time. That was really exciting. We were doing event sourcing with Kafka, you know, and Docker containers everywhere. And like suddenly everything is like cool distributed architecture and, and, you know, hyperscale and so on. There I was also doing infrastructure and I got into Bitcoin and then I was like, you know what, this thing is really interesting to me. I, I want to learn more about it. And after two and a half years at this fintech, I was like, okay, I'm leaving this startup. I want to take a break and I want to learn some of this stuff. And so I took a break and I was like spending time learning Bitcoin, you know, this is still prior to Prisma. I learned a bit of this stuff and then I got into Ethereum and DAOs were like a new thing. This is like, I think 2017, 18. And I went to the Chaos Computer Conference, which is like this big hacker gathering in Germany. I met a lot of really interesting people there and I was like, okay, I want to work in this space. How can I make it happen? And I had a friend who was working for this project called Aragon, which was supposed to be this DAO framework. We can get into DAOs maybe later on. I don't want to go on too many tangents here, but I heard about this Aragon thing. It was a DAO framework built on top of Ethereum and it was using IPFS too. And I was so like excited about that, that I, you know, I applied and, you know, they gave me a task and I built this task and it was using, I think, Web3.js to interact with like the Ethereum blockchain and pull some block and transaction data and, you know, render it in the Next.js app. They accepted me. I mean, I had to do another task and I started working for this project and this was like the first Web3 project that I'm working for, you know, and I'm suddenly getting paid my salary in crypto. And it was like a brave new world, you know, and it was the first remote job 
helped for me. This is like, you know, 2018, 19. So prior to the whole, you know, post COVID, like everyone's remote. And, and this was really exciting. I spent about a year there and then I decided, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving this. It wasn't working out for me. And again, I took a break. And then during that break, that's sort of like my foray into developer advocacy. I was like, okay, I'm tired of the Web3 thing. You know, it's, it's kind of cool, but like it's, it seems a bit overhyped. And as you mentioned, you know, everyone's shilling for some token thing. And it's like the mix of like software and like finances can get really weird sometimes, even though, you know, this idea of like, I really love the idea of these open, verifiable financial networks that are decentralized, they're global, they're permissionless. You don't need permission to use them. I mean, I love like the fundamental ideas behind this, but you know, there's obviously the dark side of this whole world. And so I, I, I was a bit fed up with that and I took a break from that. And while I was on this break, I was like, you know, really getting into writing. And while I was getting into writing, I was like, oh, Suddenly I realized, oh, developer advocacy is a role. And I was working on a cool side project and I was exploring, you know, tools. Again, it keeps on coming back to relational databases. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'll use MySQL or Postgres for this project. And while I was using it, I was like looking for, you know, some good tools to work with, like a database abstraction for Node.js. And I'd worked with Next, which is like, you know, a query builder and it kind of served my, my needs. But then I, I discovered Prisma and I was like, I was, you know, really on board with TypeScript and I was like, oh, this is great. I love it. It wasn't even called Prisma. It was called like Photon or something. This is really before even like the beta release of Prisma 2. Because initially Prisma was this GraphQL thing and then they dropped the GraphQL and it just became this pure database abstraction. That was my foray into it. And so I'm using this Prisma thing and it's like, wow, suddenly I'm like, I feel like a 10x developer, you know, suddenly I'm like super productive. I get the type safety and, you know, it was a bit rough around the edges, but for the basic kind of crud stuff, even being pre-beta, it was just fantastic. That was, I think, when like a coin dropped for me, which was like, wow, developer tools, when they work well, they're amazing. They just make your work so much easier. I saw they had some openings and they had an opening for an advocate. And so I applied to that and that's how I got into developer advocacy. And I spent about two and a half years or so at Prisma. And really we saw the community, the Prisma community grow from a couple of hundred, if not maybe a thousand developers into, you know, being the best ORM for Node.js. Obviously that's debatable, but I don't think it's debatable. I think that's a pretty open and shut case. Great. I'm glad to hear that at this point. It's interesting that it's so obvious now because along the path, there was so much resistance. And I understand a lot of things in programming come down to taste. It's funny. Your journey, it's much longer than mine. You've been in the industry, it sounds like 10, 15 years almost. But there's so many parallels between your journey and my journey in terms of going into Web3, taking it back a bit, getting into relational databases and finding a way there. And you're talking about, you know, like stacks and lamp stacks. And I feel like the stack is really the idea that kind of goes throughout all of this because you can have a web three stack, you can have a stack based on a relational database. And no matter what you have these different layers of software that add up to some sort of like usable application. And I feel like our listeners, they were probably along that journey with you for most of it. But there's a couple terms there that I feel like we should really define here. And let's just start with web three. This is one of the most ubiquitous terms, but also I think hardest to define like how would you define what web3 means yeah that's a great question i should preface this by saying that no one has a monopoly on what the word web3 means you're allowed to use it whichever way you like you, you might get some consensus on that definition or another but it's just like the web2 revolution so let's start with web1 what was web1 web1 was this sort of initial wave of the internet anyone could publish 
And the main idea was that users on the internet, anyone could read. It was like really about reading content. You know, you could explore the web. You know, I remember this like old magazine cover of teenagers exploring the web, reading content, you know, from every possible corner of the world. Web 1.0 was about reading from the web. Web 2.0 was really when social media started becoming a thing, when blogs, when you could comment. It became from a one-way street. It became like a two-way, a multi-directional highway where anyone could actually respond to whatever you published on the web. So it wasn't just about reading, it was about interacting. It was about, you know, leaving a comment, liking stuff. It was really, you know, the social aspect, making it this kind of like two-way street. So that was Web 2.0. Arguably, you know, Blogger, Facebook, MySpace, and all of these platforms were responsible for really bringing this to the mainstream. I like to think of Web 3 as if Web 1 was reading, Web 2 was reading and writing, having this two-way street, then Web 3 is about adding ownership to the web. Ownership is this really weird, amorphous thing. How do you own stuff? If you think about ownership historically, almost all ownership essentially comes down to having some gatekeepers who control a database or control a paper ledger, and they keep track of who owns stuff, whether that's land registry for land ownership or financial ownership of things, which is done through centralized databases that are operated by banks, whether that's a central bank or your local bank. So Web3, it's usually referred to all of these new ways of technology that involve ownership. A lot of that is associated with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies where you can own these tokens. The ownership for which is people think, oh, I have Bitcoin, but really you never own cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. You hold a cryptographic key that gives you access to those coins that are stored on a blockchain. And that's really the important part there is that the cryptography is what leads to some sort of vague sense of ownership. Because if you think of like PGP, pretty good privacy, it's a way to send messages between each other. And the way you can verify that you are the one who sent that message is by having some sort of key that can link to the cryptography. And so it's really just a lot of math that allows someone to say, I have this long, ridiculous string of characters that I can input and it will say it's connected to this other long, ridiculous string of characters. And that is what quote unquote ownership means, which is like a very heady concept. But once you kind of get your hands on it, you realize it actually does work because of how the cryptography works. You can't fake that long, ridiculous string of text. You just can't. It's like it's mathematically impossible for someone to conjure up that specific string. So it allows people to say, hey, I did this. I can prove I did this. We can even look at like an example most people are familiar with, credit cards. I mean, I'm sure that most of our listeners would probably have used a bank card or a credit card. If you actually look at the credit card today and you look at a credit card, say, from 15, 20 years ago, a lot has changed, but it still has the same sort of form factor. So you have this plastic card. Initially, I don't know if you've ever had the chance to use credit cards, but back in the days, you know, you, you had this kind of like a copy paper, you know, the blue copy paper, and you had this mechanical machine that would like take the embossed numbers, like the credit card number. It would actually copy it and you had to do like this chluck chluck kind of thing with it at the merchant and then you would have to sign essentially that was the signature that was proof that hey this was you. you you literally hand wrote your signature in fact many credit cards still have on the back you know this kind of space where you're supposed to put your signature when you go to a shop and you use it i mean at least 15 years ago it was still common you know they would check the signature that it matches Obviously, a lot has changed since then. Then we introduced, you know, the magnetic strip. Even with the magnetic strip, you still had to do, you know, like the handwritten signature. And then obviously, there was a lot of fraud. And, you know, 
we're, now we're in like 2022 and we have the chip and that's associated with a pin code. And actually these chips, they use the same cryptographic techniques. It's essentially a private public key pair, you know, with some signatures. And that's, you know, when you put the pin in, then there's a little chip that processes the information and generates a signature on the credit card. Of course, that's even evolved more. So it's like initially we just had the numbers, right? Embossed or however you call it. Now I can just tap it. Now you, go, you can just tap it and it's like the fourth evolution, just numbers, magnetic strip, chip, and now you can just tap it with PayPass or whatever it's called. And it's pretty amazing how all of these changes kind of happen on the same platform being that same credit card size thing. In a sense, you know, if we go back to this idea of Web3 and ownership, you introduce this idea of like cryptographic primitives that are essentially replicating what a hand signature does in order to prove ownership or identity of things. Now, the same way that actually, I don't want to get into this conversation about fraud. Keys often get lost. Identity and key management is probably the most challenging problem when it comes into a world of ubiquitous encryption. Our identity is so reliant these days on, you know, these cryptographic primitives, whether it's a Web3 world or other services that we're using that require our devices, which also use a lot of this cryptography. But there was one point that I wanted to add with regards to Web3 being about reading, writing, and owning, which is owning isn't necessarily just owning tokens. Owning can mean also, and this is very relevant for IPFS, it can mean owning your data. So today, for example, if you have a Facebook account or Twitter and you want to leave Twitter, you can ask for your archive and you can download that. They'll prepare it and you'll be able to download it. With IPFS, everything has a content ID and we can get into the details of what is IPFS, but one of the great things that IPFS gives you as a building block, whether you're a developer or a user of something that is building on top of IPFS, using this technique that we will talk about called content addressing, you can actually more easily own your data and make a copy of it. There's already examples of this in action. So I'll pause there. I know that was a lot to probably take in. This is the thing I find with most of these like web three type discussions is that before you can even get to like, what is it you have to lay all this philosophical foundation of like why you would even want this. And I thought that was a really good pitch in terms of ownership. The way I put it in like the various interviews I've been giving to explain web three is that it's about giving power back to the users and taking it away from the platforms because the web two world because of how it shaped up there was all of these large billion dollar companies that were formed that essentially are silos for the data whether that's facebook or instagram or twitter or youtube you don't really own your youtube videos like google owns your youtube videos and for the most part that's not really a problem i think for most people but there's a certain type of individual who i think just really wants that type of security and that peace of mind to know that if the entirety of Google shut down for whatever reason, then you would still have your videos and you would still be able to show those videos to people and you can decide how you want those videos to be advertised or what type of advertising will be done on it. And so there's a level of control that comes along with Web3 that's really, really important. And we talked about how like the cryptography is what kind of enables all that. But I think that the idea of ownership and especially the idea of like owning your own content, because we're talking about like owning your own data, that's more so for like a user of a social network. But if you're a publisher, then this is where I think people really start to kind of get why this is important. Because right now, there's this whole thing happening with Twitter, where everyone's worrying about whether Twitter is going to be here a week from now. And I know a lot of my close friends right now are like furiously downloading their data from Twitter and being like, oh, no, is my Twitter 
user data going to be okay? People are starting to move to Mastodon. And I'm seeing these conversations now happening around decentralization that I did not see a month ago. And so I think people are starting to kind of get hip to this. I think the connection of how that fits into Web3 is still kind of lost on some people. But the idea of these platforms are not just going to be here forever is an idea that people are finally starting to understand, I think. Yeah, there's a lot there. It's worth probably saying that we're lucky to be living in high trust societies. I'm happy to trust Google with a lot of things. Yet a lot of people don't have this high trust society. A lot of people living, you know, in places where they don't even have access to modern banking or, you know, their, their currencies are heavily inflated and they can't, you know, leave the country with their wealth. If you're living in Venezuela, Ethiopia, Sudan, Syria, you know, Lebanon, these are all places where Argentina even, you know, where people are facing a lot of constraints and difficulties that, you know, we're not so familiar with. I think it's important to sort of like broaden a bit the conversation when we speak about, say, Web3 and what ownership means, because we live in a high trust society where property rights are really protected. And OK, the whole world is facing inflation and you know the macro economy is a complex thing to even have a conversation about. What is it even? You know, the macro economy, it's just like two really heavy loaded words. But just to sort of broaden the conversation, I think even these like fundamental concepts of like, you know, private property, they're not equally available in every country in the world, even though a lot of the culture, this Web3 culture is, is, is coming and a lot of the noisy people are coming from people who are living in high trust societies, you know, the US, Europe and so on. It's really important to broaden the conversation and include like the rest of the world because that's where a lot of the interesting use cases are coming. You know, a lot of the new people joining the internet, the internet penetration rate is, I don't know, I think now at like between 50 and 60% or that's last I checked, maybe two years ago it was there. And, you know, the internet is sort of like reaching new places and a lot like, look, at Africa, for example. Africa is leapfrogging the whole PC revolution. You know, we're used to using, you know, computers, both, you know, mobile devices and, you know, actual like a, a full laptop or a computer. You know, in Africa, a lot of people have never seen a, like a full, fully fledged computer, right? They're, they're just using mobile devices. And so the reason I bring this up is because I think there's so many like interesting use cases that go beyond like our conception of social media and the whole debate around Twitter. I think what's happening with Twitter is really interesting and exciting as a social phenomena. Is it the best sort of bouncing board to discuss, you know, Web3 technologies? Maybe, maybe not. What is definitely interesting since you brought up Twitter is the story of Blue Sky and At Protocol. I don't know if you heard anything about this. Just a little bit. This is um, Jack Dorsey's new project as based around DIDs, Decentralized Identity, I believe. Yeah, essentially Blue Sky is this project that Jack Dorsey started and it's completely independent from Twitter, but it's an attempt to build something like Twitter using completely decentralized technologies in the same fashion and sort of same spirit of the old protocols of the internet. This is a podcast. This podcast is probably published to all of the different podcast apps using this technology called RSS, really simple syndication, which is built on top of XML. The nice thing about this technology, this and email and XMPP, is that these are all protocols that were built for interoperability. These are protocols that were built to avoid situations where you have one company owning basically your data. What's so interesting is that a lot of these protocols when they were built, they didn't have, you know, all of these use cases that they're used for in mind. For example, when RSS feed was the specification where RSS was created, it didn't have 
podcasts in mind. And yet, you know, podcasts have found, you know, their use case using RSS. And that's why, you know, you're able to use Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or whatever app you wish. You can subscribe to whatever stream you like, and it all kind of like interoperates. And so Blue Sky, coming back to Blue Sky. So Blue Sky is this sort of initiative to build a new foundation for social networking, which gives creators independence from the platforms and developers the freedom to build and uses the choice in their experience. And so you have multiple clients, you have developers, they can build whatever they want, like podcasts on top of RSS. And, you know, you have creators who have independence from the platforms, right? You own your data, you create the data. So they built this app protocol. The app protocol actually combines something from IPFS, the IPFS sort of world and what we're doing at Protocol Labs. It's using IPLD in order to represent sort of these feeds. So IPLD is another project related to IPFS. It's like the data model for IPFS. They're combining that with another technology called DIDs, decentralized identifiers, which is part of sort of this broader initiative for decentralized identity. Another fascinating development in this Web3 space, because well, coming back sort of, I know I'm going here on a bit of a tangent, but hopefully I can close the circle. You mentioned, right, cryptography. I mentioned, you know, credit cards also being kind of a technology. And we're like, yeah, okay, identity is like this like challenging thing. Key management is a challenging thing. Decentralized identifiers essentially are like a way to sort of introduce identity that isn't necessarily tied up with a specific service. So today for a lot of services, you can log in with Google, you can log in with Twitter or Facebook and so on. And then, you know, you're sort of bound to the platform. Decentralized identifiers, theoretically, you can use your crypto wallet, you know, as your sort of ID in order to log into things. And so DIDs are really interesting because they sort of generalize this idea. At Protocol is really starting to build this protocol. And I think they've already got like, I'm on the waiting list for the beta. I haven't actually tried it, but they're doing some really interesting work there. And yeah, I'll pause there. That was great. I want to hook into just one thing you said back there, and then we'll get into like, what is IPFS? You're talking about how we are in a high trust society and that we're in a society where we even have the rule of law. This is something that I think Americans and people who live in other countries, like you know, people who live in Europe, people who live in Canada, people who live in Australia, maybe they're used to this idea of living in a country that respects the rule of law to a certain extent. You know, there's people can always complain about, you know, like rich people can buy their way out of whatever. But I think for the most part, if I go out and run someone over, the cops are going to come after me. That is just how it works. People will talk about like, uh, there's no use case for crypto or whatever. Then I'll be like, okay, well, you may say there's no use case for you because you can go to a bank and get a bank set up. And that's something you're able to do. And you take for granted the fact that not everyone in every country in the world can actually do that. This is not something that just exists as like a natural state of the world. There's a really, really good movie, I think, that also really drives this home. It's called The Lives of Others. And this is a movie about living in East Germany when the communists were still in charge. And the point of the movie, it's about a writer who wants to speak out against the current administration. Because for people who don't know, when the communists were in charge, there was widespread purges and people who wanted to speak out against the government were either silenced or straight up murdered like by the government and he had to get a typewriter and hide it and go through this whole thing just to like 
write something and publish it without being murdered by the government. And it's really hard for us to kind of understand that this is the state of the world for some people. And having the ability to just publish your words to the world without getting murdered by your government is an actual real life thing for some people. And this is really hard, I think, for some people to understand. So when you say like, there's no use case for this stuff, like you need to keep those kind of things in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Just a shout out. There's a guy called uh, Alex Gladstein, and he's uh, working, I think, for the Human Rights Foundation. And he's done a lot of work documenting, you know, the impact of something like Bitcoin in, in those countries that I mentioned, Ethiopia, Sudan, Syria, Lebanon, and so on. Just wanted to give that shout out. And, and yeah, absolutely. As you said, We've laid a lot of this philosophical underpinning and let's get into like, what is IPFS? What is the actual technology that fits into this whole philosophical conversation? IPFS stands for Interplanetary File System. IPFS is a new way of moving data on the internet. There are two really core concepts that are important to understanding IPFS and the kinds of problems that it can solve. To start off, let's start with peer-to-peer -peer networking. The web as we know it is built around this idea of clients and servers, right? You open your browser and you access using the browser as the client, you know, a specific server using a domain name, a DNS record is looked up and you sort of, the server serves you this. IPFS changes this by essentially allowing any member of the network to be a productive member. So it's sort of breaking away from this client server model and shifts into a world in which theoretically anyone can be a server. So you take on both the role of a client and a server. This is the one sort of key concept, peer-to-peer -peer networking, where any member of the network can be productive. Like the Pirate Bay, right? Yeah. So, I mean, many people are probably familiar with BitTorrent. There's a lot of similarities, actually, between IPFS and BitTorrent. IPFS is heavily inspired by BitTorrent. And really, you know, BitTorrent, you know, the big revolution of it was, right, you know, you can exchange files from anyone, whether you're pirating content or you're downloading a Linux image by essentially, instead of going to one server and then overloading it, and then the server can go down, you can essentially pull it from anyone who's holding a copy of that Linux image. Theoretically, you can get a much faster bandwidth and you get a much more resilient system. So this is already starting to speak to some of like the resilience and the efficiency gains that you get with something like IPFS and BitTorrent, obviously. The second thing is content addressing. And since this is like a podcast focused on developers, I think there's a really good parallel or another example of content addressing. But the very high level idea of content addressing is that you address things based on what they are rather than where they are. What they are, how do you address things by what they are? Using hashes. And you can take a file, can run it through a hash function and you get the hash of it. Many developers are probably familiar with Git. Git is actually a content addressed system. When you commit something, every commit in Git has a hash and you can load that hash locally, but you can also load it up on GitHub and GitHub will be able to display the exact same commit. You change one character, you even change the commit message and the hash for that commit changes. And then, you know, you got to either do a push force or you got to create a new commit or a new branch and so on. Everything in Git is content addressed. Content addressing is actually pretty common in many different systems. Docker, actually, when you build a Docker image, you know, every step you get this kind of like output when you're building the Docker image. Every one of those steps is actually a hash of the image at that step. Could a hash be thought of kind of like a pointer? Like you have a piece of content and you have a pointer and then you can use that pointer to kind of get to the content. 
Exactly. So what is content addressing different to? And that's what you alluded to. It's different to location addressing. And location addressing is just how the web works today. You know, you go to google.com slash whatever, or you go to twitter.com slash whatever, and that is pointing to an IP, which is pointing to a location. With content addressing, and again, with location addressing, that server could go down at any time. The magic of content addressing and the magic of what IPFS does is it allows you to address things by their fingerprint, as you mentioned, right? Their pointer, but it's more than a pointer. It's a pointer that is also, you can calculate it yourself once you get the data. So you can verify that this is exactly what the pointer is supposed to be pointing to. Even if you're doing content addressing, you still have to fetch it from some location. There's a misconception about IPFS that it just magically retrieves it, but it's like, no, you have a pointer and that pointer is pointing to a number of different locations. And those locations are the network participants who are holding that content ID. That hash, we call it a content ID in IPFS, which contains the hash and a little bit more metadata. So I'll pause there. We had content addressing, peer-to-peer -peer networking, content addressing being that you can address things by what they are using these hashes. IPFS, we call them content IDs, but you can think of these content IDs like being a git commit. You know, it's just this string, this long hash. You can use that to look up things and you can look them up based on wherever they are. And the magic of IPFS is doing that content routing, translating from that pointer into all of the different locations that have it. That means that, you know, if you have more people who are hosting a bit of content, then you can theoretically fetch it from more people. I mean, obviously there's more to IPFS, but I'll pause there. I thought that was really good. I am someone who I've used IPFS quite a bit, actually. So I'm going to try and restate that and add some of my own color to it for listeners who might be really confused right now. When you first start using IPFS, you can use like a desktop kind of GUI or you can use like a CLI. When you use the CLI, you'll start by doing like an IPFS init kind of thing. And that's a lot like initializing a Git repository. Like you do Git init and then you have this repository and then you can start committing things to it. It's a similar thing with IPFS. You'll init like a repository and then say you just create an index.html file and that index.html file will just have an h1 that says hello from IPFS. That's all it is. And then you can take that and you can quote unquote commit that to IPFS. Now it's not a commit in the exact same way, but what it does is it takes this content and then it outputs what you're saying, the content hash. And then you have this thing where it's like just a long string of text. But if you then do forward slash IPFS, forward slash the content hash, then you can get that H1 back. By doing that, you can save a website onto IPFS. And then you have this content hash and something that points to it. And that's pointing to a website. And then you have a website saved on this decentralized, distributed, cryptographically verified system. I think that's where this stuff starts to make sense to like the normal old web developer like us. For a web developer, they're like, okay, I don't really understand what all this stuff is, why I would need it, you know, and then if you can kind of like break it down to be like, okay, it's just a website. You can just create a website, you can save this website on this system, and then you have a website that is something that can't be taken down, that you can't stop someone from putting it up, which then has its own kind of set of problems associated with it. But let's take it back to just if you're someone who wants to put a website up, you want it to be resilient and distributed and not necessarily beholden to any sort of like hosting provider, then you can just save an HTML file onto IPFS. 
Yeah, I, th I think that's a great way to like contextualize the practical use case. This use case specifically is about publishing content. If you're publishing stuff onto the web, you're traditionally probably used to using, say, Vercel, Netlify, or you know, Cloudflare, or whatever. You're essentially publishing it and making it available, or they make it available for you over HTTP. But again, they're running the servers for you, and they're sort of serving it, and they've got to run all of this infrastructure that is completely invisible to you in the traditional HTTP way. With IPFS, and I should say this also applies to HTTP, theoretically, you can also run on your computer, Nginx, and you can publish to Nginx. The challenge is what happens when, say, suddenly a thousand people request data from your Nginx server. Okay, a thousand requests per second, you might be able to handle that on your computer, but suddenly it grows and it's 10,000 or 100,000. Suddenly it's putting a lot of strain on your computer that you're running at home. IPFS is a new way to think about publishing content in general or making content available over the internet insofar as you can run it on your own computer and you can make it available. But then as soon as people request it over the IPFS network, then suddenly once they get a copy of it, they can also share that copy to other people in the network. Again, it's, it's kind of like you're distributing that load and you're able to do that because you have these content IDs that allow you to make sure that you're not pointing to a specific location, you're pointing to what the data is and then you can grab that from everyone who's holding a copy. In most cases, I don't think that's the real practical use case. Obviously, it is a legitimate use case. Typically, the common way to approach this is using, you know, these IPFS pinning services, services that will host your content and make it available over IPFS. You have Fleek. Fleek is a nice platform similar to Vassell that publishes to IPFS. Yeah, I've used Fleek. Fleek is super sweet. Yeah, and I mean, so Fleek is an example, right, of a way of abstracting you running an IPFS node. You can still gain all of the benefits of IPFS without necessarily running a node. I know that it's like the very sort of immediate use case to think about is like, oh, you run a node on your computer and you make your website available. Sure, you can do that. And there's a lot of cool things you can do. But I think the real sort of power if you're really building kind of like applications is that you get this interoperability, you know, it's like, okay, you can run it on your computer and then you can tell the three pinning services, for example, pin this for me. And pinning is just saying, hey, I want you to try to replicate this content ID from the network. And then initially that pinning service, it can be, think of it as like Cloudflare, right? I mean, you have pinning services like Web3 Storage and Infura and, and Pinata. And you basically tell them, hey, copy this SID and pin it, make sure it's available. And they will try to fetch it from the network. And once they do, then you know, suddenly you have two copies of it or three copies, or four copies of it available through this network that is resilient. And so it doesn't matter if one service goes down, it will still be available. This is also probably a good moment to introduce this idea of IPFS gateways. Yeah, I was going to say, for listeners, if the whole pinning concept was a little bit confusing, pinning is something that we could do an entire episode about. So like, don't worry about that too much. I just think the gateway concept is more important because this is something where we were talking about you have a repo, you can initialize once you create some content, then you get a content hash back. A gateway is what allows you to then take that forward slash IPFS forward slash content hash and append that to IPFS.io forward slash IPFS forward slash the content hash. And then you can immediately see this content online on the internet because these gateways give you an interface into the actual internet. So this is where IPFS and the old internet, the way we think about it, actually merge together. And you can put something on an IPFS node or just pin it to an IPFS service. And then it's instantly available and can be viewed through one of these gateways. So let's explain like what is the gateway 
Yeah, that, that was a great introduction. So, I mean, an IPFS gateway is a public service. Any IPFS node can typically also be an IPFS gateway, but an IPFS gateway is just a service that translates between Web 2 and Web 3, or specifically, concretely, in this case, providing a bridge between HTTP and IPFS. It's sort of like this gateway through which you can access this IPFS network where you know you have multiple people hosting your file. And that means that if you uploaded a file onto the IPFS network, you added it to some pinning service or whatever, assuming that it is available, someone else published it, you can ask any gateway for that content ID that you, you know, slash IPFS slash content ID. And using the HTTP protocol from any browser or any programming language that has HTTP in its standard library, which is almost every programming language at this point, you can request data from the IPFS network. So we have these different services that simplify things and let us get stuff online. So you mentioned Fleek. Fleek is a service that is kind of like you say, a bit like a Vercel. For them, do they run their own pinning service underneath? Where do they connect the content hash to the actual website? And like, where do they fit in into the lifecycle here? Yeah, so I mean, a pinning service is just a company or someone who's running some IPFS nodes and he's providing, exposing some API through which you can upload files or you can just you know send HTTP requests, hey, pin this content ID or pin this file for me. And really pinning, the only thing it means is hosting that file. So think of it as like AWS S3 with some extra stuff on it, which is making it available over IPFS. So that's what a pinning service is. It's just they're running IPFS nodes, allowing you to add your files to them, and then making them available through the network. Fleek is unique in that it also can connect kind of like Vercel and Netlify. It can connect to your GitHub repository or GitLab, and they will build your site for you. And then once they finish building it, they will also publish it to the IPFS network. So they will pin all of the static files that you generate as part of your website. They will sort of add those to IPFS and make them, pin them to IP, to their IPFS nodes and make them available. And not only that, they can also use this technique called DNS link in order to basically connect between your DNS domain name and the latest content ID. So imagine every time you make a change to your website, kind of like every time you make a new commit, you get a new commit hash. Every time you make a change, the resulting content ID will be different because it's a hash, right? So it's a hash of all of the data that you have in your website. And that one hash represents a snapshot of the website at that point in time. What they will do with this DNS link technique is they will essentially update the TXT record that points to the latest version and then make sure that when you access the URL, you're always getting the latest version of your website. That's a brief overview of what something like Flick can do. Yeah, it's funny. I'm having flashbacks to the first time I was learning all this stuff. I wrote a a blog post that I'll link to in the show notes, a first look at IPFS. And it is the longest I've ever spent writing a blog post because halfway through, I realized that I had no idea how DNS worked. (laughs) And all of a sudden, they're like, yeah, just create a, a text record and point it to DNS link. And then you have your DNS pointing to your IPFS. And I'm just like, wait, what? I know how to like hook a Git repo up to Netlify and then push my project. And then they gave me DNS. It was the first time I ever had to like really dig into how does DNS actually work? Because IPFS, it's not beholden to DNS. It has ways that DNS can hook in, but it's actually completely separate, right? 
Yeah, that's a great question. A good way to think about it is, is content that you add to IPFS is immutable. You get a unique content ID and every time you change, you get a new content ID. So a content ID is always immutable. You can't change the content with the same content ID because it's a hash function of it. And so because you have this sort of concept of immutability, how do you still have a persistent address, a way of say www.google.com? That remains the same, even though the content might be different or anthony.com, right? Say, assuming that was your website, the content of the website changes, but the URL doesn't. That is introducing mutability in a sense, because you have a URL that keeps on pointing to new versions of the website. So DNS link is an approach to introducing mutability to IPFS. IPFS things are naturally immutable. Using DNS link, you can actually leverage because you can change the DNS link TXT record. It's just a set of standards. Because you can change that TXT record, you're able to make changes to your URL and basically make updates to your website. Because otherwise, if you were using just immutable content IDs, every time you would make a change to your website, you would have to share a new content ID with all of your readers. And that would be like nonsensical, obviously. Right, yeah, like if you're writing a blog, then obviously you're going to have a blog post and you may edit it or change it or, you know, create new blog posts and then you have these new content hashes every single time. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I want to get into a little bit of the meta in terms of protocol labs and things like that. Is there anything else you want to speak about in terms of like the technical implementation of IPFS before we get into that? I mean, there's a whole lot there, but I think that's like kind of like a nice sort of soft introduction to IPFS. I think IPFS has a lot of interesting use cases. You could add content addressing into a traditional web 2.0 app. It's not like this black or white. And so the important thing is like, for example, if you have, you're building some kind of an app that has some interactivity or where users can leave comments, you can actually use IPFS for some stuff on your website. Like you say you have a questions and answers, you know, you can always like add all the answers to questions, you know, on your page, you can add them to IPFS and then make them available for people to download or to replicate. You don't have to like rethink about your whole architecture. You can gain a lot of the benefits of content addressing and verifiability in many different kinds of apps. And when we say content, it's not just like websites and comments, this also includes video and audio, right? Yeah, I mean, anything that you is a file and even more abstract stuff like JSON, you know, you can do some cool stuff with JSON. Very cool. So you work for Protocol Labs. What is the relationship between Protocol Labs and IPFS? Protocol Labs is historically the initiator of the IPFS project. I mean, it was just started by Juan Benet, who's like the founder and CEO of IPFS. He released the paper, I think in 2015 or 16, the like original IPFS paper in which he described the system and its properties. And he started working on the initial implementation. In that time, obviously, IPFS has sort of transitioned from being, you know, driven by protocol labs into being this more sort of community-driven project. Today, six, seven years later, since IPFS was initially started, it is a lot more community-driven. We have, you know, open specs. We have, you know, working groups that are, you know, improving different aspects of the protocol. We have contributions, you know, from the broader community that are improving the protocol and, and doing all sorts of things. And so even though like Protocol Labs is like has started a lot of this work, at this point, a lot of the work is sort of like spread across the broader community. And so you have even Cloudflare participating because um, Cloudflare is running IP 
IPFS gateways, and they are doing a lot of really cool things with IPFS. And so they're contributing to some of the protocols. And you have this other group called Fission, and they're building kind of like all these great developer tools, you know, with this really nice developer experience. And they're building this great thing called WinFS, which is kind of like an encrypted file system that is built on top of IPFS, because by default, everything is public on IPFS. So you have to handle the encryption yourself. So they are building this kind of like encrypted file system on top of IPFS. So there's many different sort of groups and contributors to the IPFS project and Protocol Labs is one of them. Yeah, I pulled up the original paper and it was actually July 2014. So we're going on eight years now, which is really impressive. And I find that the ecosystem around it is also really interesting and really impressive. It's like this is a project that one company couldn't really do all of this. You know, like they built this system, they kind of put down like the base implementation of it. And then you had both like new startups, like a lot of the ones you've mentioned, like Pinata and Fleek and all these companies, Web3 Storage. And then you also have like your legacy Web2 companies like Cloudflare are getting in on it. I think it really shows that this is like a fundamental tech breakthrough in a lot of ways. This is not just some new hyped project. There's something like more fundamental going on here, which I think is makes it a really interesting technology. I really like the fact that you have have both web two and web three groups getting interested in it because I think this is like I was saying back towards the beginning of the episode that this is one of the better I think entry points for web two developers because it's like a file system and like a file system is not that hard really to understand the complicated stuff comes into like well how do you make this file system distributed and you know able to do the more nitty-gritty type permissions stuff so that'll be the last thing i'll be kind of curious to get into before we start closing it out here is what if there's content that you don't want to be on ipfs because like we're talking about this like immutable permissionless system that allows anyone to put anything up that they want and i think most people if you know you put on your kind of like black hat hat then you can start to imagine very bad things that people could put on IPFS. So are there ways to block content, to moderate content? Like what happens when people start putting things on IPFS that we don't want on IPFS? Just to name an example, like child porn, to like go really hard to like the things we all can agree we do not want to be on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question and probably a good topic to close with. So the IPFS network consists of folks that are running IPFS nodes. There's tens of thousands of these nodes, if not, I think maybe even more, hundreds of thousands. I can't remember the latest metrics, but the idea is that you have people running these nodes and these nodes are associated with an IP address. They're operating in a certain jurisdiction. So that's one thing. Now, if a request or if content that is, so to say, bad, like you know, child pornography shows up on the network, what do you do about it? Well, the first thing is Protocol Labs is operating one of the public gateways. It's called IPFS.io. It's a public good. We have this email address, abuse at IPFS.io, where, you know, you can sort of send your abuse notifications. And then, you know, we basically block that SID from being available via the IPFS.io gateway. However, it should be pointed out that the network itself is neutral. So the network itself is built to be sort of censorship resistant. Even though you have these nodes, right? Every node has the capability of controlling which SIDs it chooses, which content IDs it chooses to block. And there's actually an ongoing work on having a formal specification for how to introduce, like for the format of blocking, 
specific SIDs. And with this, you can imagine something very similar to how spam filtering works on the internet, where you can subscribe to these different lists that are essentially, you trust a certain party, you basically subscribe to a list and you're trusting them that they are giving you all the different records of, or, or the IP or the servers of spammers so that when mail comes in, you can just check it against that list and then decide to block it. And so the idea here is to build a system where you can sort of opt into these deny lists and that's sort of the specification work and it will be followed by implementation work so that, you know, when you run an IPFS node, you can be sure that you're not sort of breaking the rules by hosting any bad content. So that's like from a high level, the network and the protocol itself is neutral. The folks running on it, it's not just magically stored, it's stored on some server and that server is likely operating in a certain jurisdiction that has rules about what is allowed and what is not allowed. And so there's obviously normal takedown requests for copyrighted content and, you know, for things like child pornography. And just because it's censorship resistant doesn't mean that it's private. So you don't get privacy out of the box with IPFS. You still have an IP address and the same way that, you know, you might have trouble if you're hosting all sorts of bad content, you know, using just a normal HTTP server, you could have the same problem with an IPFS node. I hope that sort of answers the question and sort of describe this tension between, okay, you still want to have the ability to have the network and the participants in the network moderate, but the protocol itself is neutral. There's no sort of content moderation sort of built into the network itself. Yeah, I think that you'll see a similar thing in like the Mastodon world where there'll be certain Mastodon servers that people know have this type of content so they can block those specific servers. And there's always going to be this tension here between wanting to have an open protocol and then wanting to keep bad actors out. And it sounds like you have a lot of thought being put into this around the IPFS world. And I think that's really important because there's always going to be this kind of like Wild West aspect to something like the Web3 stuff. But that doesn't mean that the people in Web3 just don't care about this stuff. Like, obviously, we care about this stuff. And obviously, we want this to be like a safe, welcoming environment and be something that is good for everyone. Like you say, there's just attention there. And it's just kind of comes down to the nature of human interactions and that you can't always have a system that just works for everyone in the protocol we wanted to, because there's always going to be some bad actors. But it's a complicated problem, but there's a lot of thought and work being put into it, it sounds like. Yeah, and I think like distributing and sort of like decentralizing the moderation work is a big part of that, sort of letting folks take an active role in what they're choosing to replicate on the network is the mechanism by which it can self-govern rather than having some kind of like centralized governance mechanism. That's where you get the resilience is by distributing the decision-making to the edges of the network. And, you know, it's again, you're operating in legal jurisdictions, so you have some constraints there, but the network itself, besides allowing you as an IPFS node operator to choose what you host, you're really distributing that to the network participants and there's norms that arise and there's, you know, legal jurisdictions and there's, you know, specifications and the mechanism to allow the network to self-govern. I'm confident that we can continue to sort of evolve this network to be a healthy one and to be one that serves. I mean, it is serving thousands of people. The requests that we get through some of the gateways are immense. I think all the NFT space, you know, is using content addressing and IPFS in order to break away from being locked into, you know, specific vendors, you know, like AWS or, you know, a specific cloud, you know, you get a much, much more interoperable web that is hopefully going to serve a broader audience of internet participants in everywhere in the world, not just in our corners of the world. 
Yeah, it's funny. We didn't really talk about NFTs at all, but you know, some of that people talk about is like an NFT is a picture saved on the blockchain and it's actually it's usually a picture saved on IPFS, not actually the blockchain itself, and that's what enables NFTs to work the way they do. Indeed, yeah. It's probably worth flagging. Most of the NFTs are just basically using an IPFS content ID because blockchains are very expensive. You can't really it's not really feasible to store a whole image on the blockchain. You know, when you have these really limited block space, I mean, there's always these jokes about how Ethereum and, and whatnot and Bitcoin are like the most expensive databases in the world. It is true to some degree. And so how do you do this thing with NFTs? Well, you know, you put up a content ID and that just points to an image that is being served on IPFS. And the interesting thing is that once you own an NFT is that you can make a copy of that SID yourself. And so if the person hosting the original SID, you know, shuts down their IPFS server and you've got a copy, well, you can continue to make it available or you can use a pinning service to make sure that there's multiple copies of it available on the network. Or you can use NFT.storage, which is one of the sort of public good services that we've launched, which will also sort of make it available for you. Awesome. So if someone wants to get started with IPFS, where should they go? What's the best way to kind of get a foot into this whole brave new world? IPFS.tech is the website. You can read more about it. We're working really to introduce more. I'm, I'm really working now on a project to have more sort of ready to run examples for how to use it. We have documentation. We just released a blog post updating on our plans for using IPFS in JavaScript. And there's going to be a lot of new and exciting stuff coming in 2023. I would definitely check out that blog post. I can also share it with you so you can put it into the podcast notes. And I would also check out the web3.storage blog. They have some great content about doing like more kind of like modern development using IPFS and content addressing. Web3 storage is basically a hosting service and they have also obviously a free tier. They do IPFS pinning and a bunch of other things. And they have some really, really fun, cool projects that you can sort of experiment with. Also using decentralized IDs. So DIDs, decentralized identifiers. I think the Web3 storage blog is a, is a great place to also, if you want to like start building stuff, a great place to check out. If you want to learn more of that conceptual stuff, the IPFS docs and the blog are, are good places to check out. Yeah, we'll have a, a lot of links for people in the show notes. And then where's the IPFS community at? We have uh, Slack, Discord, and Matrix, and they're all kind of bridged with each other. You have a Slack and a Discord? That's a first. Yeah, Slack, Discord, and Matrix, and they're all kind of like bridged with each other. So I still prefer, I, I'm still not a huge fan of Discord. I mean, that's where a lot of the communities are, and that's why I, I use it. I find Slack to be a bit of a nicer experience, but the nice thing is you can choose whatever works for you. And we have some more involved questions. You can go to the IPFS forum, that's discuss.ipfs.tech. Either one, we're, we're hanging out on all of them, and you can find all of the links in the help page on the IPFS website. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. This has been a super interesting conversation. I hope for the uninitiated, this was not too much of a fire hose of information. Yeah, this is something that I've been really pushing as like a good entry point into this whole Web3 world. And I think that for someone who's just a regular old web developer, bridging that gap to a way to just get a website online in a Web3 native kind of way can be really interesting and really eye-opening for people. I know that when I was first learning all this IPFS, 
that stuff. It felt like the first time I had legitimately learned something new since I first got into web development. Like it felt like something legitimately different and new from what I had been doing before. And it got me really fired up. And I was just wanted to like go out like explain to people like what this thing was and why it was so cool. And I did an episode with Ben Myers on semantics about this where I kind of walked him through doing like a basic IPFS setup. So if someone wants to see a more step by step tutorial like experience then you can check that out. But um, this should give people a good idea of both why you'd want IPFS, what is IPFS, and a little bit of how to get started. So yeah, why don't you let our listeners know where they can get in touch with you and what are some good places on the socials to check you out. Yeah, so first of all, thank you for hosting me, Anthony. That was really, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate all of the contributions you've done, you know, to the IPFS community by writing about it and communicating about it and you do it so, you know, eloquently. Folks can find me online. My handle on Twitter is Daniel2Color. That's just the normal non-British spelling. It's the American C-O-L-O-R. So Daniel, the number two, and then color. And then um, also I've got a website where I, you know, I, I just ramble about uh, this and that. The website for that is Norman.life, like my surname life. Yeah, those are probably the best places to find me. And through there, you can probably find links to, you know, Twitter and whatnot. So yeah, I'm happy to if you have questions about IPFS. Uh, if you're building with it, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. I'll close that for us. All right. Cheers. Daniel Norman, pretty easy to pronounce. Yeah, it's almost like a generic Dick Smith. Dick Smith. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, are you ready? Yeah.